I'm not the sort of guy who who hates politicians, but it's just a fact about politicians that when they speak, they say what is politically useful for them to say. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. I wanted to bring you a really quick episode about this controversy over voting rights legislation and this struggle to pass voting rights legislation through the US Senate, which has really been dominating the news cycle in America over the past couple of days, and particularly has been focusing on the role of the senator from West Virginia, who's Joe Manchin. Manchin's a really polarizing figure, and because and, and what's at stake in, in this battle over voting rights is really, really important. And that means that I think the conversation over this is it's being a bit clouded. It's quite difficult to have kind of a rational conversation about this issue and about what motivates Joe Manchin. So I just wanted in this episode to kind of lay down what's been happening, try and get behind the headlines a little bit to talk about what's at stake, and then to talk also about how we should understand the importance of Joe Manchin in this controversy and and what that tells us about where it might go in the future. So is this legislation going to be passed at all? Or is this this the death knell of voting rights reform in this Congress? Now, as I think everyone listening to this podcast knows, that the whole reason that this problem arises is that Democrats have a very, very thin control of the US Senate. So the Senate is currently split 50-50. You've got Republicans on the one side, 50 of them. Then on the other side, you've got 50 Democrats and a couple of independent senators who usually vote with the Democrats. That means that whenever a bill comes up, you know, to be voted on in the Senate, if all the Republicans vote against it and all the Democrats vote for it, then the Vice President Kamala Harris has to break this tie. So you have 50-50 and Kamala Harris comes in and in her role as the, the, the president of the Senate, she can provide that 51st vote. Things get even more complicated because of these um, arcane rules that the US Senate have about, about passing legislation. So it actually takes more than a majority of votes to pass legislation through the US Senate, most legislation at least, because of this thing called the filibuster. And the filibuster basically means that there have to be 60 votes for anything to get through the US Senate. So 51 isn't enough, 55 isn't enough, you need 60 votes. This has meant that it's really, really difficult for the Democrats when, when they only have 50 seats in the Senate to basically get any of their agenda done. They've managed to pass a few things so far, mostly using a, a different process that can only be used for financial bills and can't be used for, for voting rights legislation. That's called reconciliation. But so Democrats have found it really, really difficult to get most of their agenda done. And this has particularly been the case of voting rights. Now, the, the bill in question that's caused all of this controversy is something that's called the For the People Act, or it's sometimes called HR1, which is just kind of its technical designation in, in Congress. And what, so what is HR1? What's it about? It's a bill that's mainly about voter access. So it's mainly about making it easier for people to be able to vote in federal elections. It does uh, like a whole list of things. Uh, some, someone wrote a column recently saying that actually I can't summarize the For the People Act in one column. And that kind of tells you everything that you need to know about it. And I think that's true. It's a real grab bag of different measures. It was originally put together 
In 2018, when Democrats first took control of, of the House of Representatives, there's something that's called a messaging bill, which is kind of a bill that you put forward, never expecting that it's going to pass in, it, in its current form, but it kind of is designed to become the focus of political conversation and to highlight the differences between you and your rivals. So HR1 had its origins as this kind of messaging bill that was supposed to highlight basically that the Democrats are very, very in favor of democracy and Donald Trump was very against democracy because this was 2018 where, well, as today, you know, this is still a very live issue and it was a very live issue in 2018 as well. So HR1 does all kinds of stuff. I mean, the things that people talk about the most are uh, reforms to campaign finance so that it would be much, much more difficult for so-called dark money. So that's basically money that's used to influence elections, but but no one knows who's spending it, where it comes from. It puts restrictions on dark money. It also really expands voter access. So for all federal elections, it would require that every eligible voter be automatically registered as a voter, that same-day registration would be available. There would be at least two weeks of early voting in all federal elections. It would restore voting rights to felons who have completed their terms of incarceration. And it would make it much easier for voters who didn't have ID to vote. And finally, an additional thing is that it would make it much more difficult to to limit or to purge voter rolls, which is something that happens sometimes. It happened in Georgia, for instance, in 2017, 2018, when the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia purged loads of voters from the rolls, so basically deregistered them to vote. And this was um, this was said by progressive groups to basically discourage these people from voting, make it more difficult for them to vote, and, and that can swing an election. It also places... Um, new standards on partisan gerrymandering. So this is basically where um, state governments can draw congressional districts in a way that advantages their own party. This is something that Republicans have done a lot over the last 10 years, although it's something that Democrats sometimes do as well. So happens in Maryland, for instance, which is a Democratic state, but happens much, much, much more in Republican states. And HR1 basically would make it more difficult to, to do things this way. Um, and would try to come up with kind of non-partisan objective rules about gerrymandering, which would make it much more difficult for Republicans to kind of pad their majority in the House of Representatives, which is basically what they do. They, they get an advantage of about two or three percentage points overall in the House of Representatives kind of through this gerrymandering. So that's what HR1 is, or I should really say that's what HR1 was, because it, it although it never really had much chance of passing Congress, and that's something I'll talk about a bit more in a second, but now it's really, really not going to pass. And the reason we know that it's definitely not going to pass now is that Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, who is a very important swing vote in the Senate, although he's not the only one, so he's a, he's a Democrat, a moderate Democrat or almost a, a conservative Democrat. Um, and, and he's, you know, so to try and get 50 votes for anything in the Senate, you need to have Joe Manchin on board if you're the Democrats. Now, like I said, they actually need 60 votes to pass any legislation. But the hope was that Manchin might come on board with, with other Democrats, with his colleagues, and actually agree to get rid of the filibuster, to kill the filibuster. You need 50 votes to do that. And if you were to do that, then from that point onwards, you would only need 50 votes to pass any legislation in the Senate. So basically, there'd been this kind of huge hope that, okay, maybe Manchin is going to agree to kill the filibuster, then we could pass the For the People Act, and, you know, that would be great. But on Sunday, Joe Manchin published an op-ed 
Um, he actually published it in a in a West Virginia local newspaper, which I thought was a really kind of funny power move. You know, he's putting it in this local newspaper that I bet no one in Washington subscribes to, so they probably had to scramble to go and get subscriptions, which might have been very helpful to the West Virginian economy, so well done, Joe Manchin. Or they had to get it otherwise, you know, basically probably have an illegal copy of it passed to them from behind the paywall, something I would never endorse, of course, as an opinion columnist. So he published this op-ed in this West Virginia newspaper, and he basically said, um, I'm not going to agree to get rid of the filibuster. He said that many times before, but he also said there's absolutely no way that I'm going to back HR1. I'm not going to back the For, For the People Act. And in fact, I'm not going to back any reform of voting rights of the election process in this country unless we can get the Republicans to go along with it. So we have to have Republican votes in the Senate for voting rights reform. That is a position that basically means that there's not going to be any voting rights legislation within this Congress. Um, you know, the, there aren't, there just are not going to be Republican votes, you know, particularly not 10 Republican votes for anything like the For the People Act. Joe Manchin pointed towards a separate piece of legislation that he said that he would back. It's something called the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is a much, much, much narrower, more targeted piece of legislation. Doesn't really do anything like what the For the People Act does. And he can only actually cite one Republican senator who supports that legislation, which is Lisa Murkowski. And you're not even going to find another nine Republicans for, for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So this kicked off a really, really crazy storm, you know, for, for Manchin to say basically that we can't reform the voting process in this country unless we get Republicans to buy into it. This strikes an awful lot of people as a very, very kind of strange thing to say at a time when all over America in state legislatures and state governor mansions, Republicans are moving to change the voting process in a way that makes it much harder for people to vote and makes it potentially easier for them to overturn legitimate election results, as you know, many Republicans wanted them to do in the 2020 presidential election. They've basically taken this um, false charge of, of fraud that Donald Trump put forward about the previous election and said, okay, well, to, in order to deal with this fraud, we've got to pass all of these reforms all over the country that make it much, much, much harder to vote. So at the same, you know, at the time that Republicans are doing that, there's just absolutely no way that Republicans in Congress are going to move to undo that or to make it easier for people to vote at the state level because Republicans tend to think that it's bad for them when more people vote. So th th this has kicked off quite a storm, as I say. And this is kind of where, okay, so I, I want to talk about what, 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 how should we interpret what's happened here and then what might happen next now that I've kind of laid out where we are right now. So I'd like to firstly say something about HR1. So as I said earlier, HR1 was, was this messaging bill that was kind of put together three years ago now and which was never going to pass actually in the form that it was in. You know, when HR1 was drafted, basically, you know, Trump was in the White House, the Democrats take over the House of Representatives and they get together every single activist group, every single liberal group that, that has an interest in election reform and they basically take the demands and the wishes of all of these groups and just put them in one bill. And then they, they pass it through the, through the House of Representatives 
in order to make the Republicans look bad for, for opposing democratic reforms. And that left a bill, you know, this process of drafting and the initial intention behind this bill left a bill with a great deal of problems, actually. There's many parts of it that might actually be unconstitutional. They might actually not, at least if they're not unconstitutional, they're not going to get through the, you know, the Republican-dominated courts that we increasingly have in the United States. Um, it, it also doesn't solve many of the problems that are actually unfolding right now, including recent these recent state-level attempts by the GOP to actually control the, the vote counting process in a really insidious way. So HR1 is, is a flawed bill. It had many, many different things in it. And, you know, the, the idea was, though, that it was never, you know, when you draft a bill, especially a bill that's this important and this big, you don't expect it to pass possibly in anything like the form that you originally write it, you begin at a negotiating position and you expect that it will become the subject of negotiation. Probably the problematic parts of the bill would have been removed, would have been stripped out, and it could have been reduced down to something that was actually, you know, much more streamlined, much less controversial and much easier to pass. So what was really shocking about what Joe Manchin said wasn't that he won't pass HR1 in its current form, because no one really expected that, but he said that he won't even negotiate on it, because he's not going to pass any voting rights legislation without Republican support. And because that support is not going to happen, it rules out any version of HR1. It means that you can't even debate HR1, you can't negotiate over it, you can't strip it down and make it more effective and and, and, and easier to pass, so the conversation is just basically over. This leaves us in a huge impasse. You know, it looks like now that no voting rights legislation is going to pass this, this, this Congress, and also what Manchin has said about the filibuster, that he's not going to back doing away with the filibuster, means that probably huge other parts of Biden's agenda are also going to be blocked, because it's very, very hard to get anything through the Senate while the filibuster is, is in place. And it is important to note that Manchin isn't the only Democratic senator who has problems with the For the People Act with HR1. He's not the only Democratic senator who has problems with getting rid of the filibuster. But we focus on him so much because he's the most intransigent. And, you know, the it's probably the case that the other senators, given enough pressure could be could change their minds but that's a debate that we don't even really have because Manchin provides cover for them he's the one out there who's saying I will not do these things and because he alone is enough to stop them from happening that means other people so these are senators like um Kristen Sinema like John Tester like Angus King they just keep their heads down they, they don't you know stick their heads over the parapet and, and risk getting into trouble with the left wing of their party they just are out of this conversation altogether really so there's a lot of conversation that, that kind of focuses around well how do we change joe manchin's mind because if we change joe Manchin, manchin's mind maybe we can change the minds of these other senators as well but I think we have to understand how kind of unlikely it is that Joe Manchin is going to change his mind. And, and to understand that, you have to understand where he comes from. So he is the Democrat, Democrat elected from West Virginia. That's a state which gave the second highest proportion of its votes to Trump in 2020. Only Wyoming gave a higher percentage of its votes to, to Trump in 2020. In 2016, West Virginia was in the top spot there, so it was the most Trumpy place in the country. And Manchin is a Democrat who's managed to get elected twice as the governor of this state. 
and then a senator. So that's a huge political accomplishment. And it's actually really helpful to the Democrats. It's great that they're able to get a senator elected from this very, very Republican state. And if you didn't have Joe Manchin, then you wouldn't have any sort of Democratic majority in the Senate, even this super tenuous 51 to 50 majority. So this is kind of why Joe Manchin has Democrats over the barrel. He's the one who's propping up their entire Senate majority. No other Democrat, I don't think anyway, of course, you can never say never, but it's incredibly unlikely that any other Democrat could hold that seat in West Virginia. And when Joe Manchin's gone, if he dies or he retires, then Democrats are probably going to lose that seat. And, you know, if that happened now, if Joe Manchin was to die tomorrow, then the Democrats would no longer have that majority in the Senate. He's he's in this position, you know, where it's, it's he, he gets so much criticism from progressives, but actually he's the one that's making it possible in the first place for this administration to pass anything. Now, a lot of people often talk about his motives or his beliefs and, and try and figure out why he's doing what he's doing. And I, I don't think that's helpful. Nobody knows what his motives are. We don't know what his beliefs are. No, you can't. I, I'm not the sort of guy who, who hates politicians, but it's just a fact about politicians that when they speak, they say what is politically useful for them to say. They, they don't say what they really think. So it's really impossible, I think, to, to figure out where Joe Manchin is, is really coming from. Joe Biden was actually, um, so there was a, a quote in Politico recently, the, the Washington DC News Magazine, that said that even Joe, Ma Joe Biden feels that he doesn't really understand Joe Manchin. He doesn't know where he's coming from. He doesn't know what he wants. There's kind of a lot of uh, talk about pressuring Manchin from the left. Progressives say, well, okay, we, we've got to change Joe Manchin's mind, basically, and that we can kind of do this in, in, in two ways. So one of them is just that a lot of progressives criticize Joe Manchin. You know, they, they go on TV and, and say bad things about him. So recently, Jamal Bowman, who's a congressman from New York, went on TV and compared Joe Manchin to Mitch McConnell, which, you know, the, the former um, Republican majority leader of the Senate, that's pretty much the worst thing that you can say about a Democratic senator is to compare him to Mitch McConnell, who's nicknamed the Grim Reaper. But this isn't helpful. It's, you know, it's absolutely great for Joe Manchin if people in West Virginia turn on the TV and they see people like Jamal Bowman criticizing Joe Manchin, because that just means that they see him as standing up to progressives. They see him as standing up to these parts of the Democratic Party that they don't like. This kind of pressure, overt pressure, is actually just giving Manchin exactly what he wants. You, you, can't, you can't change his mind by helping him politically, right? That's just not going to work. You know, the, also sometimes Democrats will talk about, and this is kind of a bit more of a hazy argument, but they'll say, okay, well, we need to somehow change the politics of, of West Virginia if we can maybe mobilize West Virginians to put pressure on Joe Manchin, or we can change the way that West Virginians view American politics so we can make them more left-wing, then that's going to mean that Joe Manchin is going to kind of track with them and become more left-wing as well. This is, if this was ever going to work, this is like a 20 or a 50-year project. West Virginia is one of the whitest states in the whole country. It's a state where white voters who don't have college degrees make up 69% of all of the voters in West Virginia. And that's the group of voters that most solidly votes for Republicans in national elections nowadays. So this kind of strategy that worked in Georgia, where Democrats mobilized groups that hadn't voted before, so they mobilized um, more African-Americans, they've mobilized more Asian-Americans, 
that just doesn't work in West Virginia because there aren't those populations of voters who, who aren't getting out there and voting and, and might vote for the Democrats if, if they did. Instead, you have a state where the demography is not changing, it's very static, and it really, really heavily favors the Republicans. So, you know, the reason that Georgia flipped Democratic recently is basically because the demography of, of Atlanta is changing hugely. Liberals are moving in from other parts of the country. Um, like I said earlier, there's these growing African-American and Asian-American populations, and that means that basically the demographics have made Georgia the easiest state to split, uh, to flip. And it's the fact that other states in the South don't have an Atlanta that means the same thing isn't happening there. And West Virginia definitely doesn't have an Atlanta, and it's, you know, its demography is not changing. So, like I said earlier, the, you know, my overwhelming conclusion is that once Joe Manchin is gone, that state has gone for the Democrats. And any idea that that, you know, the, the politics of it can be changed in a fundamental way are just, just not helpful. And even if th that could happen, that would be a very long-term project. This leaves the U.S. in a state of very profound gridlock on this very, very important issue. So this, uh, one of the things that, that made Manchin's statement about the fact that he wouldn't support any um, voting rights legislation unless it was bipartisan. One reason that this really annoyed a lot of people and struck them as completely illogical is because all over the country, in these state houses, in these governor's mansions, partisan vote voting legislation has been implemented by the Republicans everywhere in the country. So Republicans are launching this concerted attack on the democratic process, and Manchin's basically saying, we won't respond unless we get the Republicans to agree to that. This leaves this really, really profound state of, of gridlock. And basically the strategy that the administration has is just to keep on doing the same thing until Manchin changes his mind. So they think that if they keep on putting bills like the For the People Act up for a vote in the Senate, they keep on putting other legislation up for a vote in the Senate, and the filibuster keeps leading to that legislation not happening, that eventually Joe Manchin can be convinced that bipartisanship is just never, ever going to work. You're never going to get Republican votes to pass any Democratic priorities, including priorities that Joe Manchin says he agrees with, by the way, because Joe Manchin himself says that there's a crisis of democracy in America. He says that America needs big infrastructure spending. So the idea is that if you can show him that the reason this isn't happening is because of Republicans refusing to buy into that, then maybe he'll change his mind. And it's not actually so much about changing what he believes deep down, but what it is about is basically if he can show to his voters back home that he tried and tried and tried to do things the bipartisan way and he stood up to progressives and, you know, he was criticized loads by Jamal Bowman and by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and all of these progressive figures, that maybe he can, he can eventually convince his voters that, you know, he's tried hard, but this just didn't work. So maybe now we do need to get rid of the filibuster. Maybe we do need now to pass these pieces of legislation now that I've put up a resistance and, and kind of done, you know, done what the folks back home want me to do, and I, hopefully they'll understand. Now, I'm not sure that's going to work, um, because I'm not sure that, that Joe Manchin is ever going to change his mind. I'm not sure that he's ever going to think that he's done enough for the voters back home. 
so this leaves America in a really, really tricky situation. And it means that, you know, in the next few years, some might say that the future of American democracy really depends on this gamble that's been made about what might make Joe Manchin change his mind. And that's a really, really uncomfortable situation for the country to be in. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.